Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Richard Gadbury. Richard is an M&A advisor in Texas. Richard shares some interesting insights today on buyer side motivations that we haven't really talked a lot about on the podcast before. I want you to pay particular attention to several points that he makes about why buyers will make different offers for the same business because their goals and objectives are different. This is an important fact that entrepreneurs and business owners really need to get their head around and understand because it will make a big difference in how they approach the sale of their business and actually the positioning of the sale of their business as they think about it years in advance. In this episode, Richard shares the details of a transaction that involved an e-commerce business that had two divisions or really was two businesses in one. He shares how there were really a lack of understanding on the accounting of intercompany transfers between these two businesses within the company that nearly not only derailed a deal, but nearly cratered the entire business. Richard talks about the importance of having a CFO, either one that's a fractional CFO or perhaps a full-time one, and how this can make the difference between a successful company operation and its exit, as well as how this can really force difficulties in a company, bringing it to the brink of failure and completely botching an exit. So I want you to pay particular attention to this story that Richard shares with us because it has some really interesting insights on companies that have different divisions and how they account for intercompany transfers. Next, Richard shares the details of a transaction where the seller felt that their business was worth a whole lot more than the actual financial statements showed. Richard gives a master class on sharing how different types of buyers will pay entirely different prices for the same business. He also shares an insight on how banks really set the price on what a business is worth and what will be financed if the financing involves outside financing either through the SBA or bank financing. So often entrepreneurs that have service-oriented businesses really fail to realize that what they're selling in a service-oriented business is primarily goodwill because the hard assets of a business are only a small fraction of what the business is valued at. And that a buyer, when they acquire a service-oriented business, what they're really buying is the cash flow and the cash flow that is produced by employees, by the management, and by the systems that are in place versus the trucks and tools and equipment that actually show up on a balance sheet. And that's an important insight that a lot of people really don't get their head around. Finally, Richard shares how a seller sold a company that really was overpaid by the buyer. And the reason for that overpayment wasn't necessarily because the business was so unique in itself, 
but it was the skills that the owner actually had developed in running the business and his understanding of the industry. And they offered the entrepreneur in this case a sweetheart deal and really gave him an opportunity to define his dream job. And that was to oversee an entire business entity with a lot of different components and different locations in it. And sometimes an entrepreneur just doesn't realize how valuable their skill set really is. And this is a story that really dramatizes this fact. I'm sure that there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there listening to this episode that are going to learn a lot and take away some real great insights from these stories that are shared on this episode. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast, where we chat about interesting transactions where founders, entrepreneurs, and business owners work with their advisors to position their companies for an eventual profitable and successful exit. Today we have with us Richard Yadberry. Richard has been in the business for some time. And Richard, why don't we just let you do the formalities here and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about where you're located and your specialty. Okay, sure. Thank you. Uh, my name is Richard Gadbury. I'm a, a business broker, merge acquisition advisor, and I've been been in the business since uh, 1999. I generally am located in Dallas, but I do businesses. Uh, I do transactions all over the United States. And uh, I, I'm currently uh, a consultant at Murphy uh, in an over the m uh, department and help people with their transactions as well. But uh, the size of businesses I typically live in are around a million to 10 million. That's kind of our area and mostly in the three to five. That's kind of the size and scope of the deals that I typically do. All right. Well, let's get started then. Why don't we talk a little bit about a couple of those transactions you've been dealing with over the years that had their challenges, may have made it to the closing line, and you know some of them actually don't, unfortunately. Why don't we talk about one of those and have you kind of talk about the type of business it was and the profile of the actual business owner and entrepreneur that you know, was managing the business. Okay. Probably one of the worst transactions I've been involved in uh, had to do with a technology company, data and routers and servers. And this particular business had a uh, an internet sales and counter sales side to it and also had a sales insulation and troubleshooting side to it. So two businesses within one umbrella of a company. Do you know why they actually had two businesses instead of having them under one umbrella? Well, I think they, I think it was, uh, you know, the online sales part of, of that company, uh, that, that was, it was a pretty sophisticated side and they sold quite a bit of product through online sales. And there's a lot of people in that market, uh, that do technology, whether it's security cameras or, or, or any of those kinds of things that are, they're, you know, a lot of people need servers and, and routers and cabling and, all that kind of stuff. So they service a, a large amount of service providers through their online sales. And, and, and then they had their own company, a uh, similar company that they serviced as well through their, through their counter sales department. That makes a lot of sense. Much like you would go to a Napa to, to buy a rebuilt starter. Uh, that was what that business was about. You walk in and buy you know, whatever you needed in the technology world, uh, from cabling to routers and servers and things like that. Okay, cool. Well, how did the transaction kind of unfold? Was the motivation to sell just because they were kind of getting burned out of the business or they had grown it to the position where they felt that they just kind of wanted to step away from the business? No, Marvin, what happened in this scenario was that the seller, uh, he had originally bought this business a couple of years ago. I think he had owned it 
probably a little bit longer than two years. And uh, I, th- I believe he paid uh, $3.2 million for this company. And um, when he came to us, he was struggling to make cash flow. He was struggling to make ends meet. Uh, he had a pretty sizable uh, SBA note on the business. And just frankly, he could barely make the note, barely make the note payment. And he was struggling big time. And he wanted to sell. And um, so when he came to us, uh, we, we valued the business at around $2.4 million based on its cash flow. Don't recall exactly what it was, cash flow inventory, but uh, somewhere around $600,000 of cash flow or so is how we looked at it and uh, with the inventory and all. And um, in looking at the balance sheet, the liabilities, SBA, you know, commissions, taxes, uh, the seller would have been upside down uh, selling the business at that price. And so it was a big decision as to whether, you know, could he sell? And, and from his perspective, he had to sell because he just couldn't make ends meet. He didn't know why. And, uh, and so to make, to make the deal work, we had to have him commit to sell one of his rental, rental houses. He had several rental properties that they owned. And he committed to selling one of his rental properties to make the deal work if he had to do that. He would be selling uh, one of his rental properties to generate cash to have enough to actually complete the transaction on a sale when he had legal expenses and fees to you and others, appraisals and things like that. He actually needed to put money into the deal to facilitate the closing. Right. So we found a buyer. Um, The buyer happened to be a publicly traded company and uh, looking to... A grow in that industry. They 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 came from security, uh, commercial security. It had very you know trying to get into really the interest in the company was more about the national accounts than anything else. But but um, in this particular situation, the buyer got involved. We had it on the market at two point four million dollars, and um, and the buyer agreed to buy the business. They submitted an LOI and through their due diligence, because they're a publicly traded company, they had a little bit more sophisticated uh, quality of earnings uh, company. And they uncovered that the business, uh, the, the, the seller had been double booking sales, uh, interaction, inter, intercompany sales between their counter sales and their sales department. So why don't we take just a pause here, just for our audience that might not be too familiar with this term that you use in this report, quality of earnings or quality of revenue report. Why don't you just briefly explain why a company would have that type of a requirement for reporting purposes? Okay. In, in a lot of transactions that are that are done with a, let's say, smaller transaction, uh, not even lower middle market, just big, big main street transaction, usually it's an individual buyer and an individual seller. And the, the due diligence part of it uh, basically, you look at their P&Ls and their tax returns, and that's what the bank looks at, and that's all that's really required for a Main Street or big Main Street kind of transaction. When you get into larger transactions, then a quality of earnings report really is a more intensive sort of forensic accounting due diligence, if you will, uh, where they actually will go into some accounting and make sure that the cash flow that you're stating is actually there, the revenues that you're stating is actually there and can be proven and tracked and all to, to, to further uh, solidify that they're actually making a good acquisition. And in this particular case, being a publicly traded company, they, they had to do that. Yeah. So you made the earlier comment that there was some intercompany transfers. You know, there were two companies, two sides of the company. 
And when you have situations like that, often, you know, one company is transferring money from a bank account over to another company on a loan or an intermediate cash advance type of basis, and then they'll pay it back. And it's kind of challenging sometimes, you know, to keep track of that. And so what you're really sort of indicating is that part of the normal due diligence process for this, quote, publicly traded company, it was kind of required that they have that. And so they were just going through their normal due diligence, which is a little more intense than what is traditionally done between buyers and sellers. And in that process, they were tracking some of these bank transfers and other accounting transfers on the books, and they noticed some anomalies, is what you're telling me. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, the uh, if, 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 if my memory uh, serves me correctly, I think we were uh, we reported, based on their P&Ls and tax returns, a cash flow of around $660,000. And through the forensic accounting and quality of earnings report, uh, it was more like 200, a little bit less than 200, 180, somewhere in there was the actual cash flow. And so, you know, that explained to us why the seller was hurting so bad, not being able to make their debt service payment on a monthly basis and, um, and uncovered the fact that they were, they're internally reporting internal transfers from from their sales counter sales so that's interesting just for interest purpose here is that they were basically double booking this revenue and that was really causing the stress on the financials position of the company because they had to make these note payments when he acquired the company and he was always struggling to make these note payments and scratching his head and saying gee i have all this money in the bank my financial statements say that i'm making all this money but i just can't seem to get ahead that's right we hear that we hear that quite often from sellers who don't understand their numbers uh, but but that was the case here i mean here's a guy thinking he has six hundred fifty thousand dollars of cash flow where is it? I can't make a no payment. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty substantial blow and uh, it took a while. It really took a while. And, and some, you know, for the buyer to have to step back and say, you know, could we make this transaction work? It turned out that the company, the selling company had some large national attractive, uh, large national accounts that the, that the buyer thought this would be good for our company. And it would, it would make up being a publicly traded company. It's a, it's a different world than, than uh, privately owned companies and making a splash uh, could uh, could substantially raise their cash position just by investors buying their stock. So they, they thought that uh, they went ahead and bought the company at the value that we stated. They paid off all the liabilities, they paid off the note, the credit cards, the, everything that was on the balance sheet. And um, and so we got the transaction done. Um, and uh, the, the seller, you know, a little upset that he never saw a dime in this transaction and, and kind of forgot the fact that he said, I'll, I'll be willing to sell a rental property, even though we had it riding. And so it, it was a, it was a, it was really a, a it was one of kind of a good transaction that we pulled it off, but a bad transaction that uh, the seller was very unhappy uh, with the way it came down. I think he thought he was going to get a bag of money and, and be able to pay off the notes himself. And that just is not the way it worked specifically with a publicly traded company. I'm just really kind of intrigued with how this transaction unfolded because I think there are some real takeaways, you know, for those that are listening into the podcast today. Uh, when you talk about 
not only understanding your financial statements and cash flow statements, but this whole concept of how money flows through your bank accounts and your financial statements, you know, income statements to your balance sheet. Listening to how this transaction unfolded, it looks like, or seems like anyway, that the seller probably had some senior level accountants and maybe uh, bookkeepers that were doing his accounting and just kind of following the debit and crediting of the accounts and writing checks and using QuickBooks or something like that to generate their financial statements and uh, really never understood this whole intricate accounting process of how intercompany transfers and booking of revenues takes place. And that sounds kind of like how this financial statements were created. And then they would tie off to the the tax returns. You know, when you're reporting this revenue and you're transferring money around, a lot of times that doesn't flow through. And they were actually reporting more revenue on their tax returns. So the tax return sounds like they tied off to the financial statements. And so things were assumed they were good, but when the quality of earnings report was done, and this you said forensic accounting, where they actually go in and track some of these transactions through on a spreadsheet, they were able to uncover really what the problems were. Very well said. I, I, I couldn't have said it any better. I'll say it more directly, though. I believe that um, this, I, I mentioned early on that the seller had purchased this business two years ago. And so... We're not sure whether the original seller uh, actually made the mistake in booking the revenue incorrectly, and the, the the seller we were dealing with just kept the same accounting practices and was continued double booking uh, earnings, or if the original seller overstated values just to get a better price for his business. We, we don't know that, but to your point, uh, when you have businesses of this size, uh, Often sellers try to get away with having their front desk person, the, the lady, the lady or the man that answers the phone and says hello, and also you know, does the books on QuickBooks or Quicken, if you will, and, and uh, not really an accountant or just booking income and, and uh, kind of like a checkbook, kind of running a business like you're running the checkbook, and it's not it's not correct. And uh, you know your balance sheet should balance in your income statement and uh, should should correctly report cash flows. Not an accountant myself, but seen a million businesses, and and uh, that's usually where the problem is: is that you're just not booking your numbers correctly. Yeah, I think that's how things unfold a lot of time. It's you you become very transactional oriented versus understanding really how balance sheets and income statements and you know the equity component of a balance sheet you know kind of flows through and all it all ties off the tax returns sometimes you just leave it up to someone that just repairs your tax returns and doesn't do anything more than that and all they're interested in is making sure the the financial statements tie off to the tax returns not what actually the financial statements are supposed to be telling you <laughs> sounds like that's what happened here well i guess the real takeaway then from this if i were to summarize this Richard, is that Make sure when you're operating a business, especially when it starts to scale, that you have maybe a CFO type of person. Even if you hire one on a CFO by the slice, you know, where they're just uh, working a day or two a week in your business and uh, giving you actual financial analysis and uh, input versus just a bookkeeper. I think that's, to me anyway, that's really what the takeaway here is. And it sounds like this guy, sort of uh, the seller, really dodged a bullet by finding a buyer 
that understood some of the components of the business and they could monetize those national accounts. Otherwise, he may not have found a buyer. I'd say it a little bit. Uh, I'd say it a little bit differently, but just harder. If you, the, usually, a guy that that has a business worth three million dollars, this is the most valuable asset that you own, and you shouldn't go cheap on trying to do your accounting accounting with a bookkeeper. You should spend the money, and whether it's a fractional CFO or a full time person that that really understands how to account for your monies. I think it's worth it's going to be worth the money because you're you're at some day you're going to sell. Uh, someday you have to acquire capital equipment. And if you're not not booking this correctly, you know you're and, and I see this all the time. You, I don't know how you make financial decisions on advertising and marketing and employing someone a uh, contract that you're going to when you don't really understand your numbers. And so I, I think it's worth I think it's worth the money to have somebody that really understands. How to how to uh, calculate the correct profit margins and the correct uh, quality of earnings that you need uh, to run a business properly. I think it's really important. All right. Well, I think it's well said there. So let's chat about another transaction you're involved in that uh, has a great takeaway for those listening in today in our audience. Tell me a little bit about the next transaction. Okay. Yeah. This is a this is a situation where um, we had a really nice business, a, a very nice business. This is a, a retail laboratory type company where employers have drug testing done and, and people off the street may walk in and get a B12 shot and, and things like that. And really nice business, run very well, very profitable, uh, general manager on site and, um, and the seller wants to sell. The seller had a good reason. One of the things we, we always wonder when we're working with a seller who wants to sell us, what's the reason? What are you running from something? Is there a real reason to sell? You got to tell a story to a buyer. We want to make sure it makes sense. And in this particular case, it made sense. The uh, the uh, sellers were not located where the business was that we were selling, and so there was a distance issue, a travel issue, a cost, if you will, to manage the business uh, by making trips. And so they they wanted to grow where they were located, and they wanted to kind of move off of the, this current location. Anyway, it was good. It was a good purchase. We valued it probably around uh, 1.8, 1.9 million dollars, and uh, with some other benefits that we saw of the company, where it was located, the ability to expand a solid, uh, a buyer in this particular case, didn't have to work the business. You could actually, you could actually be an absentee buyer because they had a general manager on staff. So we, we, we gave it a couple hundred thousand dollars more. We, we thought we could sell it at $2.1 million. The sellers on the other hand, wanted a, wanted a bigger number. They felt that, um, that was a, it was worth a premium and they wanted a $2.5 million and, and boy, when sometimes when we have a gap like that, uh, we're close to walking away. We're, we're close to maybe this maybe this isn't going to work. And uh, but we felt like we felt like that there were some pliable uh, people here that we could probably work. In fact, I told them that uh, you, know, you can ask. We can ask two point five, but I'm going to tell a good buyer when I get a good buyer on the phone. I'm going to tell them it's a, it's a two point one million dollar deal. And uh, finally, they they came around, but. Um, it was it was really hard. That was probably the hardest part is to keep the buyer on, excuse me, keep the seller on track uh, as we went through the buying um, part of it. Uh, at the time, there were some favorable SBA uh, type uh, features that they were allowing. Uh, I believe the one was the the Hairs Act, where uh, the SBA was paying principal interest on the first six months, so that helped us get get our number. Um, and several other factors like that, but we were able to get it done at 2.1 million. But 
but boy, it was really hard to keep the sellers on track and, and believing that they got a good value. Uh, what we believed was a little bit higher than market value. So in a situation like this, Richard, where you have a business owners, maybe someone that's worked for years, if not a decade or two, building the business, and they're kind of emotionally tied uh, to what the business means to them and the value that they have in mind that they're wanting to get out of the business, how does this sort of relate to reality of who the buyers are and what a bank will finance? So talk, walk me through, you know, this the psychology of what different buyers will pay for a business. There's a couple of things that you know, go on here, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned psychology because I think that's the most important thing. You know, when you when you have a when you have a seller, and one one of the things we look at is, you know, as I said earlier, is the is the why? Why are you trying to sell? And it needs to make sense. If you have a situation like you just mentioned where it's a 30, a business owner that's owned a business for 25, 30 years old and they're ready to retire, then what does retirement look like? And, and, and in a lot of cases, you know, they do a back of the envelope, you know, my accountant told me and, and they have some number that is not even close to the, to the reality of the situation. And sometimes they just misunderstand uh, that the CPA said or their accountant said, your business is probably worth three times your earnings. And they think the earnings is revenue. And, and, and that's not what he meant <laughs> at all. And so we, we, you know, we use valuations and things like that to come to, to the reality of the situation and determine what's the gap between their expectations and the reality here. And can we bridge that somehow, some way? And sometimes it's with wealth planning. Sometimes it's with consulting. And sometimes it's just really understanding the fair market value of the enterprise that you're trying to sell and come to terms with it. And a lot of times, uh, so that's, that's, that's that side of it. Now, so address really this issue of different buyers willing to pay a different price for a business, even though maybe valued multiple of earnings, but that may not be important to a buyer. That's right. That's right. So, so you can take a situation like that and and um and first thing is is that you have to understand who the buyer is if you're if you're going to sell to an individual buyer then really it's the bank that's setting the price because the, the, they're going to sell on a multiple of earnings and and that they're kind of setting the price that that's a, an individual buyer but it could be a private equity group or it could be a strategic buyer that's looking at your business and they have different they have a different goals and aspirations about that business rather than they just hope to get the cash flow the individual buyer is trying to pay us you know, make a salary and, and, and pay the bills at home and, and run his own show and call his own shots and, and stepping out of the corporate world. But, but a strategic buyer or a private equity group, they have different goals and aspirations of an acquisition like that. They could be doing a roll-up. They could be buying several companies like yours. And, and therefore, their, their end game, you, you take one business that's worth $2.1 million, probably would trade about three times, 3.2 times its earnings. You put six of those together, and now you're selling at a seven to nine to eleven uh, multiple, and that's the game that a strategic or a private equity group buyer would be looking at. Therefore, they'll overpay. Uh, they'll overpay sometimes to get a good business that has a good cash flow and goodwill. So, what you're really saying here is that keep in mind who your buyer is going to be, not only when you're at the table, but when you're thinking about selling of who that buyer may be sometime down the road, you know, a couple of years ahead of time. And in working with someone like yourself, you know, you can chat about positioning the company and maybe targeting different types of buyers because of what they're willing to pay. 
for the business and, and kind of moving toward that end goal. Because I, I like what you said there, that sound bite of, uh, you know, it's the bank for an individual buyer that sets the price. Uh, you may want 2.5 in this case, but the bank is only going to lend based on 2.1. And they may lend you based on 2.1 and the buyer would have to come up with the difference if they were willing to pay 2.5. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and see the, the, the seller, the seller says, well, that's okay. We'll just, then we'll just look for a cash buyer. Well, okay. Let's look at it from a, if you don't mind taking that, that, that approach for a second, let's just look at it from a buyer's perspective. I could pay $2.1 million for your business that generates say four or $500,000 of cash flow, or I could take this $2.1 million and put it down on a much larger business that the SBA would finance and probably make a couple of million of cash flow. I think I'm going, I think I'm going to use other people's money and leverage, leverage my down payment to make us much more substantial cash flow. And, and, and then you back up and say, uh, cash is king. You know, when a buyer wants to pay all cash, he's going to get a discount. Sometimes a big discount, a big discount. And so you have to be careful about, you know, we, that's where structuring and understanding what kind of company you are, you're an LLC. S Corp, C Corp. So you really have to understand what's the tax ramifications on a transaction. So a lot of planning goes into place before you actually go to market. So you understand your value, understand your most likely buyer, understand your most likely terms, your tax situation, so that you're really knowledgeable and, and you understand you know, what we're trying to achieve here in this, uh, in this event. Well, Richard, those are some great insights. Uh, we'll take a quick break here and be back with Richard to chat about some transactions that really went well. As I share stories from intermediaries on the podcast, I get comments from entrepreneurs all the time that have questions and concerns about how to properly position their business for an eventual exit. One of their biggest concerns is what they need to do to optimize the value of their business when a time arrives for an eventual exit. I have prepared a report that outlines how any entrepreneur can literally double the amount of money they put into their pocket when they sell their business. While it may seem like I'm hyping how easy it is to maximize business value, it really isn't that easy. But if you do the right things, it's not as hard as you think. The real key is knowing what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. To get your free report, just go to www.businessexitstories.com forward slash report. Again, that's www.businessexitstories.com forward slash report. And I'll send you your free report. All right, Richard, thanks for those transactions we chat about that had their challenges and some great takeaways that we chatted about there. So why don't we have you share a couple of transactions that you've had over the years that went smooth and where the sellers came out smelling like a rose? I had a situation where quite often I get called where the buyer and the seller have already met themselves and they're just trying to put the deal together. And in this particular situation, uh, the seller called and wanted me to represent them in a, in a deal where uh, the buyer had already made an inquire and and found that there was an interest in selling. But they, that's about as far as they went. They were they were still dating, if you, if you will. And so I got involved with the seller and I told the seller, "Hey, before we go any further, let's get the business value. Let's understand, you know, where you're at, you know, and uh, and where where what are you asking for and 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 all that." So. We valued the business at, um, gosh, I think it was 3.3 million, 3.4 million, somewhere in there, 3.2, somewhere in there. I don't, I don't recall, but it was about a three and a half, three, $2.3 million deal, I believe. 
it was 3.5 million. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, it was a $3.5 million valuation. And uh, so we engaged the seller, uh, sorry, the buyer, and uh, we engaged the buyer. And the buyer uh, looked at our cash flow analysis statement, which is hardly ever do they agree. But this buyer was so interested in this company uh, and their strategy of, of uh, acquiring and consolidating in that particular industry. It was like, no problem, wrote a check. Piece of cake. I mean, it was it was so smooth. The whole thing was so smooth. They, and in fact, they they actually appreciated the fact that the sellers had a broker on their side, uh, a person that could help them understand where how the transaction was moving forward, and, and you know, kind of keep the seller at bay. I mean, the buyer at bay because they kept uh, sorry, the seller at bay because they kept one more money. It seemed too easy. Um, you know, surely we're leaving money on the table, and and so you had to kind of keep them under wraps and. And make sure they understand that this is the way it's supposed to work, and and the whole implementation, the the buyout strategy, the the quality of earnings report. I mean, everything was just so smooth. And in a lot of cases, when when I mentioned quality of earnings, that's that's due diligence, and due diligence really is a lot of the discretionary uh, discretionary expenses that sellers have in a business. Uh, sometimes they don't like that. Sometimes they won't believe you, and so. You know, sometimes we have to have to work and, and sell and negotiate through some of those quality of earnings and and, and uh, due diligence issues. But this was just a piece of cake. I mean, it was so smooth, so easy. Even even step back yourself and go, did I ask it fast the right number? This uh, is fascinating. You know, did the buyer just write a check for the whole amount down or did they put a down payment or did they have terms? Did the buyer stay on board for a while? How, how were some of those terms worked out and some of the details that go on behind the scenes? How did they work out? Okay. So so when a when a buyer buys a business like that, you know, they're buying the goodwill. They're not they're not really buying the trucks and the inventory and the tools and, and things like that. They're really buying goodwill. And goodwill really really represents the fact that this is a service company and, com- and companies that are service companies provide service and it's the people. It's the customer service person, it's the general manager, it's the salespeople, it's the technicians, the installers. That's really what creates goodwill. And so to expand and, and to make that business run well. You need those people. That's the engine of that company, and they really want them to be happy. And so they treated them very nicely, very well. They they allowed them to keep their vacation time and sick days and personal days off. And in fact, the sellers not really they, they were selling because they were being acquired, but but they they were young, young enough to to want to stay on and and do you know kind of create their dream positions. And and uh, it it really went so smoothly from that perspective. And the actual terms of the deal, uh, they, they actually paid the price. They put two thirds down cash, and and the third third uh, was a and was to be paid in twelve months. And so, so the buyer, even though it was so smooth, uh, the buyer did have a have a way to counter if if everything promised wasn't really there. But it turned out to be a great transaction. They got their money. Everybody was happy. I, I stay in touch with them, and they. Every time they tell me about it, uh, both the buyer and the seller, they tell me how happy they are with the transaction. It's just one of the most smoothest transactions I've done in 20 years. It's really, really was a nice deal. Well, when you get a situation like this where the stars kind of line up and uh, a buyer is getting what they need out of the business and a seller is excited about what they're actually acquiring, I liked what you mentioned here is that 
in a service-oriented business, we kind of had a, kind of a strategic buyer here, it sounds like, and they're acquiring a number of businesses in this space. And they're really not buying the trucks and the tools and the hard assets of the business. And I like that comment that you made there because in a service-oriented business, they're really buying the goodwill, which is really, in this case, made up of employees. It's made up of what really generates the cash in the business, and that's customers, either one-off customers or ongoing revenue from customers that have contracts or something of that nature, and kind of the systems that are in place. That's what they're really buying is this, quote, goodwill. And although the trucks and the tools and the hard assets will come along with the business, they're really paying for what generates the cash. And I like that you made that point. And in this case, things sort of lined up and they wanted to keep the employees happy. So they let them keep all their vacation time. And I would imagine they even increase salaries and bonuses and keep people happy because that they are the people that are generating the cash in the business. Stay behind bonuses. That's right. So that's a great takeaway. So if you have a service business out there and you're thinking about eventually moving and stepping away from your business at some point in time, you really want to make sure that your team is happy and tied to you and are willing to stay on board and that the buyer understands the value of that. And if you've done a good job, they probably will. And you'll get your asking price as well as some great terms. It sounds like that's what happened here. Marvin, I would say that even if you're in manufacturing, in any, really in any business, uh, it's the people. Uh, it's the people that build the goodwill. Uh, you know, it's it's the contracts that you have, the service that you provide, the product that you sell, and and the, the overall satisfaction of, of the company. Whether it's whether you're building things or you're making things or you're selling things, it, it's really the people. The, uh, smart buyers that I see buy, buying companies. Uh, you know, that they. I don't want to say they're just always pay the price, but what they don't do is go in and change things. You know, let's just let it run for a while and, and, you know, let me understand the operation and the quality of the people and then look for things over time that we might be able to increase and change and modify a little bit to, to increase things. But they don't just walk in the door and say, my way, the highway and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's really important that you keep the business running well. All right, Richard. So why don't we uh, kind of wrap up and chat about a transaction that has another great takeaway and some lessons for our audience that's listening today? Okay, so I have uh, I sold a, a company uh, to a, a really nice family uh, many years ago, probably 12, 13 years ago, uh, a small HVAC company. It was about a million one uh, transaction. And um, the buyer in this case was just leaving his job, leaving a, a corporate position and try, wanting to spread his wings and, and run his own show. And we happened to have at that time a, a small HVAC company for sale and it worked out real well. Uh, you know, it was a good, it was a good purchase. He paid the price and got him in and it was all, everything kind of worked out well there. And the seller, uh, who liked my services, I helped him buy and sell several businesses over the, over the years. And the, and the, the buyer in that particular case and I became friends and I stayed in touch with them, make sure that they just ran well. And from time to time, he would call me and say, Hey, you know, if, if you had a good buyer out there, I'd be, I'd be willing to sell, you know, it's it just get that kind of thing. And, but his number, his number that he wanted was always overpriced. He always wanted, he thought he had a $2 million company. And several times, I, I'd say after, just to be real clear here, after about 10 years, he started calling and said, hey, if you found a buyer, let me know. And I'd take a look at his financials and I'd, I'd see about a $1.3 $1. $3 million business based on the cash flow and earnings. 
And he thought he had a $2 million deal. I would say, yeah, I really think it's a $2 million deal. I really think it's a $2 million deal. And so I'd be very careful about showing it to some, you know, to someone. And over years, I think, uh, you know, from time to time, it may creep up to 1.4, but it was really around that 1.3, 1.35, 1.4 area. And uh, he couldn't move off that $2 million number. And so I, I was going to, I was really going to fire him, if you will. <laughs> and just tell him, I, I can't, you know, I need to quit showing it to people because it gives you a bad reputation as an intermediary if you keep showing people businesses that are overpriced. They, don't you value these things? You know, so I really want to, I was wanted to be careful, but I happen to have a buyer come through that was a, which is something we're seeing quite often these days, younger private equity groups. These guys are barely over 30 and, uh, you know, they've got, they've got, they're coming out of school with MBAs and they're putting together private equity groups and they had a consolidation strategy to buy several of these kinds of businesses. In fact, they wanted seven of them. And, uh, and so I, I told them about this, my client, my seller, my seller friend, I didn't have a contract. I just, just a buddy of mine that owned a business. And, you know, if I found the right buyer kind of guy. And so I told them about this company and, um, and they looked at it and, and uh, valued it. And, and we were probably about $400,000 off. I, I thought, you know, again, I, I'm just around one, three, one, four, they're around one, two, the sellers wanting, you know, one, six, and, you know, I, so we, we had to arm wrestle a little bit uh, to make this work. Just for clarification purposes, why was the these young guys that, uh, you know, are private equity oriented, what specifically about this business did they like? Was it the cash flow? Was it the positioning in the market? Was the actual owner themselves? Did they value his skill set? What, what was it that drew them to be this really interested in this type of business because they're going to buy a number of them and for silver price they just move on and find something else right and re- and really that's what what got this up to the to the number that we could work with was the fact that they were going to hire they weren't going to buy a five or six or seven more of these kinds of companies they needed a, a guy that understood the business and, and the seller in this particular case had the organization skills and the management skills and things like that that they saw could be the general manager for their big operation, bring them in at, at a corporate level and let them oversee the operations of all these other acquisitions that they were going to make. And so there was the intrinsic value that they that they saw and they were willing to, to overpay. And, and uh, we ended up doing a $1.5 million deal on that particular transaction. Everybody was happy. Everybody, everybody, everyone, the buyer and the sellers were very, very happy. And it allowed them to, to with confidence, make these additional acquisitions and the seller uh, the, the the guy that contacted me originally was now now in a general manager role, very very nicely compensated, and it worked out. It really worked out for everybody. This theme has sort of come up several times in our discussion here of the different transactions that you've talked about. It's really focusing on if you are either thoughtful and strategic enough to think about who the buyer of your business is eventually going to be. Even though you want a premium price and maybe even overprice your business a little bit, if your business and what you're bringing to the table, whether it's your cash flow or whether it's your goodwill or in this last case, uh, really the skill set of the owner of the business really fit in nicely with kind of the strategic vision of this private equity group that they needed that executive, that general manager 
to kind of oversee the five, six companies that they're eventually going to acquire. And that really met their strategic needs. That really met their criteria that would allow them to justify overpaying for this business, even though from a cash flow perspective, it was worth several hundred thousand dollars less but they were willing to ante up and overpay for the business because there were other components of the business that were valuable to them. Very well said. And in this case, it was really the organizational skills of, quote, the general manager they needed, someone that understood the business. That's a great takeaway. I would say the takeaway on a, on a deal like this is you don't sell your value businesses based on your P&Ls, your balance sheets, tax returns. But you don't sell businesses on tax returns, balance sheets, and P&Ls. You establish a benchmark. And the next, the next challenge is to find the right buyer, the right buyer that's willing to buy the business smoothly and, and pay the right price uh, and achieve the goals in, of, of both the buyer and the seller. That's really the, the key here. Many times at the, at the end of the show, we're, we're, we're at the night before we're closing, and, and I, I don't want to say many times, but a few, a, a more times than you would want to have happened. Is we're, we're, we're doing final inventory count. We're just dotting the I's and crossing the T's right before we're going to go the next day and exchange the money. And, the, and you may find the buyer standing over in the corner staring at the tax return. And his face is white. And I go over to him and I take the paper away and I say, you're, you're not going to find the answer there. The answer is in your, in your heart. Can you really run this company? That's what you're asking yourself. And the answer to that question is not on the balance sheet. The answer to that question is up here and here. And so sometimes we have to help them take that next step into business ownership, or maybe we got to go find another business, or maybe it's time to go get a job. But that's really, you know, really, uh, even the sellers, uh, you know, the sellers that are on the business for 35 years and, and giving up their baby, all their, their clients or their friends, their suppliers they've been hunting and fishing with, you know, their, their, their employees are like family. They've had several generations of families move through the business and it's hard. Sellers remorse starts kicking in, and, and boys, you, you you know you better be sure this is really what you want to do because we're about to stand in front of the walking down the aisle, and we're about to get married. <laughs> no backing out. <laughs> well, those are some tough decisions for people that have spent decades, in some cases, entire career or lifetime building a business, and then to walk away is is, is like getting divorced. It's like a death in the family, <laughs> you know. So it's an emotionally wrenching decision. Well, this has been a great discussion here today. I think we've had some great takeaways. Richard, if someone wanted to reach out after listening to your comments and some of the insights that you've offered here today, if they wanted to reach out to you, what would be the best way for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, so I can be contacted uh, by email at rgadbury at murphybusiness.com. You can see the, uh, the, the logo up above me, Murphy, Murphy's Acquisition Advisors. But uh, murphybusiness.com is, is, the, is the tail end of that, rgadbury at murphybusiness.com. Or you can call me on the cell phone at 972-342-8511. Well, Richard, I really appreciate you being here today. And until next time, this is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on our next episode. Thank you, Marvin. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.